You're listening to the Pulled by the Root podcast. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Pulled by the Root podcast. I am so happy today to have psychotherapist Tony Dunn from Ireland with us. I found Tony through his TED Talk online. Luckily, he said yes to an interview. I was immediately drawn to the softness of his heart, the triumph of his story, and then, of course, the work that he's doing to, for his own healing and helping others heal around the world. I would like to read a bio that Tony sent to me so we can learn a little bit more about him before we dive in. Tony was born in the 70s. He's in the inner city working class area of Dublin, Ireland. The 70s Ireland was pretty much influenced and governed by the Catholic Church. Schooled in Christian Brothers schools, childhood for him was full of fears. He always felt there was something different. To escape this, he created his own fantasy world. He struggled always to identify with anybody as he grew up. Teen years were a struggle. He found alcohol at 15 years of age. This was to change his life for many years. His first drink gave him a connection that he had never felt. And as any drink story goes, to be no different until rock bottom. Recovery brought a new chapter and profound things began to happen. Education and reading were to change Tony's life. And the freedom began when he told his story. As an adoptee, connection has never been easy. And he is able to tell his story now and ask questions that has made him the psychotherapist he is today. Being adopted has given Tony the opportunity to identify and connect with people. He understands the difficulties. Tony, thank you so much for sharing that bio. And I'm just so happy you're here. It's lovely to see you again, Heidi. And uh, it's a privilege to be on your podcast. Thank you very much for asking me. Well, there's so much to talk about, Tony, but I think it would be really nice. I know a lot of people have seen your TED Talk and listened to other interviews. But perhaps you could just start at the beginning and shape your story for us, maybe fill in the blanks of your biography so that we can better understand who you are. And then, then I have some, a whole list of questions. Yeah. I mean, as I say in, the, in, your, in your intro, you know, I was born in the 70s and uh, early 70s. And, 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 you know, I was born into a country that was very much governed by the Catholic Church at the time. And um, I know there's a couple of blank, couple of uh, things I need to fill in, but uh, like that, what I know is I was adopted after a fairly short period of time, Heidi, you know, um, you know, matter of weeks, really, to be honest with you. So it wasn't too long. And uh, I was adopted into a very loving family, you know. And as it turns out, my parents were, we call it in Ireland, cross religion. So that would be one was Catholic and one was Protestant. You know, so that was actually, in, in, in an actual fact, that was really strange at the time, you know, because mum and dad had to move from a particular side of the city to the other side of the city to be able to live comfortably nearly, you know, at the time, because it was very much Catholics magic married Catholics, Protestants married Protestants. But, you know what, there was a lot of loving in that, that family, you know, there really was, you know, and um, I, was the, I was the firstborn of three adopted children. And, um, you know, my story, I suppose, one of the major impacts of my story is, is around, you know, at a very young age, I knew I was different. There's no doubt about that, you know, and I never knew because I feared something. I was always afraid as a child. And that was reinforced in my journey at about, about the age of six. And, and I tell the story within my TED Talk, I talk about, you know, that fear that was really reinforced within me, you know, petrified is the only word I can say to it. You know, a knock came to my door. Myself and my brother were born. I was six. He would have been four. But there was a, we had a sister. Orla was her name. And a knock came to the door. I remember distinctly, it was a Friday evening. Because I've been able to put these blanks in after asking questions over the years. But what I do remember is there was a priest at the door and his name, I know his name, is his name was Father Egan. He was from a place called Castle Pollard, famous place that would have, you know, been a, a place where children were held uh, and adopted out or fostered out um, in Ireland. 
and it is synonymous now at the moment around the babies and the baby um, and uh, the, the troubled issues around the baby and homes issues, you know. So um, he came and he was coming to take my sister Orla back without warning. And uh, I, the only thing I remember is being told that I had to leave the house. But I remember my mum being extremely upset. But over the weekend, I was to find out that what was actually happening was Orla was being taken back. You know, and this was after a short period of time that she had been living in the house, you know. But I know for certain that it was never explained to me what was going on, what happened, why. But I know that I was terrified that I would be taken back at some stage as a child. And I lived with that. It was never explained to me. So I had that anxiety as a child. I grew up from six years of age. Even prior to that time, I was I was an anxious child, you know, full of fear. So I guess that was to kind of, I suppose, be really etched in my journey as an adoptee, as a child. And I always felt different in the family. Now, it was explained to me that I was adopted, so I was aware of that. Um, but I could never, I could never see, like, looking at my cousins and looking at my relations, I could never see myself in, in them. You know, I just couldn't. Where if I looked at my cousins, they could I could see they were all brothers or sisters type of thing, you know. But I could never see myself in my brother. I could never see myself in my dad or mom, you know. So it was always identity for me has always been something that I have always tried to reach out for, you know. So I guess I just took my journey from there and I, you know, that identity piece, I suppose I, I began to seek out identity or connection with people. Uh, so eventually, you know, I was to find alcohol and alcohol mm-hmm. was to be, you know, that place where I found the connection, you know, and, uh, you know, that that's really where I was as a teenager then, you know, and uh, I don't know whether you want to ask any store, any questions now at this stage, uh, Heidi, just to, if that's, yeah, no, I would. I, I definitely would. I need to stand up because I, I really want to sink in here. Something that you said in one of your interviews was, can you take us to that scene when you had your first drink? Because I love how you describe it. It was almost like the antidote to your problems at that moment. It's like you found a missing piece in the addiction and so many adopted people suffer from addiction. So if you could just tell us about that that scene and really paint that picture, and then maybe we can stay on that thread of your alcoholism because that is really important that you have survived that and thrived beyond that. So maybe we could just really, really get into that for a few minutes. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, I suppose in Ireland, uh, there was never any rules and regulations around Everybody drank. You know, that was, society was drank, drink. Now, as it turns out, my parents weren't drinkers. You know, they, they, they socially went out for a drink maybe every, every year or weekend, but that wasn't in my household. I never seen that, you know. And, uh, but like that then, I began to work as a kind of a, a lounge boy, they call it, which is like a waiter carrying drinks to people. But I realised, I used to look at, I was fascinated by, was was the men in the bar happy, really, really happy and, you know, jovial. And Because and, I didn't have a life. I didn't feel like a happy child. I just never felt happy in myself. But I, when I seen this happiness and smiling and all that kind of stuff, you know, I was always curious. I wonder would I ever be that happy? So I, I made a connection there that maybe it was something they were doing. And I, I began to... I was able to kind of uh, nearly communicate with the older folk for some reason as a young boy, like, you know. Um, I don't know what it was. Socially, I was very good like that. I could talk like that. But because of that, to be honest with you, Heidi, the fantasy world I had created for myself as a kid, I was always dreaming about who I could meet that looked like me. So I created a fantasy world and I tried to live out this fantasy world for myself. 
you know, and, and it probably began with talking to older folk that I had created as a fantasy for myself, you know. And like that then, um, what, what alcohol, what I really found in alcohol is that to, to, when I f- first took a drink, there's absolutely one thing for certain, and I've no doubt about this now, that when I picked up a drink, I found a connection. I really found a connection that I never felt I had in my life, a connection with anybody else. And, and it was to, to alcohol, the substance, because it brought this place, it brought this Tony out that actually, you know, that could ask a question without fear of a rejection, to, could, to ask a question, to talk to a lady, to talk to a woman type of thing. I had all these horrible fears in me, but it brought this newfound connection to me that I loved. But the only thing about it was that the feeling I had when I took my first drink, I never really got it back. I never, ever got it back. I chased it all my life. I chased it all my drinking life, you know. And uh, But it took me to a place for my very first drink. I drank not socially, but to get drunk because I felt I was getting out of myself and I didn't feel different. I felt connected in a bar. I felt connected to people who drank, you know. But, mm. you know, it, it, it never really... Drinking for me just went on that pathway of just destruction. You know, I, I, I then seen a kind of a, an opportunity to work in a bar behind the bar. And very quickly, even in that bar, as, a, as an employee, as a young man after leaving school, I was told by the owner, the manager, maybe this is not good for you because you, you just can't stop drinking. And this was as, as a 17-year-old kid, this was it was. He was telling me, you know, Maybe you, you need to look somewhere else. And he gave me a chance. I got a chance off him. He said to me, you know, I'll send you to college. So he only got me to work a certain amount of days in the week and I went to college in Mercury. So I trained myself up into, in, into a guy sales, in the sales position. And uh, that, that particular, I took on a role in sales. I, I became very successful in that because I could talk. I could, I could, I could lie. You know, that's what drink brought me. I could lie. I was the sales guy that could lie, you know. And so I, I became very good at that. I became very good at it. And I could drink very well. So I could entertain people, fill them full of rubbish and, and entertain as well, you know. And, and that's where it brought me. I mean, I was able to do a role that, could, that gave me a license to drink. And I took that role on. And uh, I was good at it. I was good at drinking. But in all this, um, and I'm talking about connection now, you know, that no matter who I met, no matter who I befriended, I never held down friendships for very long, you know, because I always had this fear at some stage that I'm going to be rejected or I'm going to be not wanted, you know. So, So before that actually happens, I tended to either dash, run, whatever the case be. So whether it was friendships, whether it was that relationship that I was in with a woman, I ran as soon as there was that fear of maybe getting too close to someone, getting too vulnerable to someone. And uh, in all this, I had never, I had never been honest with anybody at this stage around my adoption. No one knew I was adopted at this stage. And that's the life I was living. So it was total fantasy, total lies, nothing true within myself. So um, I was the perfect kind of person for that alcohol, alcoholic because I was always living in, in a lie. I was always, you know, just being dishonest, you know, and uh, that's the way it was in, in relation to relationships, friendships, workplace, that type of thing. And I also done the, the the, the, the the alcoholic where I moved from place to place to place. Never outside of my country, but around different locations around, you know, counties and within the countryside of Ireland type of thing, you know. And I was to find that um, I found myself in the countryside. And this was after, I suppose, people were after starting to be questioning me about my alcohol, intake and so I decided that 
as soon as people started to do that, I was on. I moved on. So I ended up, I ended up out in the countryside in a place called uh, Newbridge and Kildare, which is very famous for the Budweiser Derby. It's the most expensive uh, horse racing event in the world. So I lived there and it was a lovely place. But one of the greatest things about this town was that this town was a big drinking town and a big horse racing town as well, you know. And uh, very much a lot of people who were seeking folk like myself moving out to the countryside. There was a lot of that going on. There was a lot of sport going on as well. But this town gave me that freedom to just be that person that I fantasized about what I wanted to be. Not the real Tony, always the fantasy Tony. No one knew I was adopted. They knew my name, Tony. They knew my name. And other than that, I just told lies and I just lied the whole time, you know. And, and, and I was to continue on that pathway. Like, how do you know? Nothing changed for me. I didn't educate myself at that stage. I just worked in a sales role. I continued to do the same thing, traveled the countryside, and on some occasions traveled in Europe as well, you know. And um, I just went from relationship to relationship, destroyed it every time, you know, and... Uh, and, and, and I met some beautiful people on the way. I mean, really beautiful people that were decent folk, really decent folk. But as soon as they began to show that they loved me for whatever reason, I just couldn't handle that. I just couldn't handle it. I couldn't handle it because it meant I had to be honest. It meant I had to be vulnerable. It meant I had to start talking about who I really was. I just wasn't able to do it because I... I was never, as I grew up, I feared. I feared if I said this, I would be rejected. I would be abandoned again, you know. And it tore me apart, like it really did, because it just made me consume my life in alcohol, you know. And, uh, and that's what I do. I continue to do that. And eventually, I suppose I was lucky to meet this girl who wasn't a drinker like I was at the start. And uh, but the thing about it was, she was actually a counselor, a psychotherapist herself, and she tried to fix me. And I was completely resentful to that situation, completely resentful to it. And but eventually, years of drinking this is 20 years on now, my drinking love at this stage, you know. And uh, I'd spent a number of years and many years with her. and. It came along to a December, Christmas time. And she said to me on the 1st of December, this particular year, it was a year when I had experienced, you know, a lot of joyous, my football team had won big competition in Ireland and I had I had reached a milestone in birthdays wise, you know, and um, various different things had happened to me that year that would was starting to click into play around Health was really deteriorating, really deteriorating. I was smoking. I had taken to drugs. I had drank, I was drinking as well, you know, and I was bringing drugs into the household at this time, you know, which wasn't me. I mean, I, I, it was alcohol was mine, but I just couldn't get what that forced drink gave me as a connection. So I seek this connection in drugs, you know, and uh, so on the 1st of December, she knew the path I would go on the 4th in December was I was entertain clients and bringing them out for Christmas and all that stuff. And she just asked me, would I promise her that I wouldn't do the same as I did last Christmas, you know, the stride. And of course, yeah, of course, I, I promised her, yeah, I won't do it. And that was on the 1st of December. And by the by the 3rd of December, that was broken, you know, and that was the way it was. But I was to continue for 22 days, you know, up until the 22nd of December that year. And I remember... There was an occasion I, I was I was in Dublin on the 20th of December and uh, I left my car in a car park and I ended up in my house, which is 30, 30 kilometers away, uh, two days later, you know, and uh, I ended up in my own bed and I, I pieced together since then. I know what happened since, but, you know, I knew... I couldn't remember a thing. I knew the two days had gone by and uh, I ended up in this bed and I don't know how I did. And, and, sh and she wasn't there. 
Neve wasn't there and I went into another part of the house and, and she was there and I, I asked for the first time in my life I used these words and they were to shape where I was going to go then you know and I, I said to her look I do I need help I need help and I'm pleading with you to help me and she didn't utter a word to me not one word and uh, she took a pen and paper and she wrote down a number and a, and a pa paper and she handed it to me. She said, you need to ring that number. And I hadn't a clue what number I was ringing, but I knew I needed to do something. And if she was telling me and she was giving me a number, I knew it was the right number to ring. And I rang. And it was Alcoholics Anonymous. And uh, like Heidi, just to put things in perspective at this stage, you know, my daily, my daily ritual at the time was to drink. That's the way it was. I didn't know any different. And this was early in the morning, relatively early in the morning, like nine o'clock or so, 9 a.m. And uh, I rang the number and it was Alcoholics Anonymous. And I was petrified. I said, Alcoholics Anonymous. And I said, look, I think I need help. I said, I can't stop drinking. I, my daily intake of drink is just, I can't stop. And he said, to the man on the other side of the phone said to me, look, you got to meet me this evening at eight o'clock. I said, I, I said, I don't know whether I can meet you because I said, I just want to drink. He says, all you've got to do today is not drink. Simple as that. And, and also just to say to you, Heidi, at this stage, I know as well in that month that I had so much hatred for myself. I didn't want to really live anymore because I didn't know life. I could have a life outside of alcohol. It just has total control over me. And I remember being on an, a bit of a bender at that, in that month and knowing that I didn't want to be on this earth anymore. I really didn't want to be here. I wanted, I wanted to go. I wanted to go. And I made a conscious decision that I wanted to do that. But thank God, for whatever reason, I didn't. And uh, I live to tell the tale. But that was very real for me, Heidi. I have very vivid memories of yeah. having that awful talk, you know. And... Uh, Thankfully, I didn't. And, <laughs> but like that, that day in question, on the 22nd of that December, I, 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 I didn't drink, I, which was phenomenal for me. You know, I don't know what stopped me. I really don't. And, uh, you know, I got to a meeting that night and the madness in my head when I went into the meeting, I met the man beforehand and I was shaking. I was, you know, just a... It was just fear would come back into my life. I was shaking, like I really was. And I went into a meeting and he tried to put me up the front of the, the meeting and I, I said, no, I've got to sit down the back. I sat down the back of this meeting and it was a big meeting, I was, you know. Um, and I heard a man speak that night. And I don't know what it was, but I heard men and women in that room talking. I thought they were... I thought they were planted. I thought Neve had planted these people. That's how insane I would go. I thought it was all about me. You know, that's how I thought. But they were telling their story, which in actual fact was me. But I didn't see that alcohol was my problem. That's how insane I was. And I went, and that madness, I went home that night to the house and I wouldn't talk to Neve. I wouldn't talk to her because I thought she had planted them people there. That's how mad I'd got. You know, but for some reason, I remember there was a man there who shook my hand when I came into the room and he said, you're very welcome. I what? I wasn't welcome anywhere. He said, you're very welcome into this room. I said, you know, I, I, I felt, my God, this man actually, I, I felt he meant this, you know. And the man that brought me to me, he said, all you need to do is just come back tomorrow. I said, what do you mean? He said, just come, come to a meeting tomorrow. Where is the meeting? He said, I said here again, same time tomorrow. And the same story happened for several days and I just kept coming to a meeting. I just couldn't admit it, by the way, Heidi. I couldn't admit that I was alcoholic. I didn't get it. I just didn't get it. I didn't want to get it. But um, I hope that kind of answers and gives you a frame of where I got, where I got um, to, you know? Yes, Tony, thank you for sharing. I, oh my stomach 
It's just, that's so real and so powerful to walk through that experience with you. And one of the things that's coming to mind now, because you are a therapist and you are on the other side of this, I, I'm just going to throw something in there that's moving my heart. If you could go back to that 15-year-old boy that night who was going to take his first drink, who was scared to death and looking for connection, because I guarantee you there are people out there right now who are getting ready to do that very thing or to take that pill to whatever that distraction is that is going to further destroy their life. What would you want to say to him like in that before he picks up that drink? Like maybe someone else can hear that as well yeah. and be able to stop in their path and on a better trajectory. Yeah. And Heidi, I suppose I'm very lucky in a position to know that where young Tony was that night when he took that first drink, you know, and I'd really be empathetic about understanding his fears and his anxiety around life and what this may meet this substance might bring to him. You know, I'd be, wanting to talk him through, I understand where you've come. And I think if that, at that moment, as an adoptee, if I would have been able to ask a couple of questions and be understood and really heard, maybe I would not have done that, taken that drink. And maybe that, that, that therapist that might talk to me as a 15-year-old, you know, might say, you know, I hear you, Tony. I understand what you want is your connection. I understand that it's just being able to ask a question. I understand that what your fears are. I understand that it's it's your identity. You know, and, and I think if that would have been said to me, I might have walked out of that pub because then I would have been would have been really heard by someone, and uh, maybe. That's what that's what I wanted, you know, and that's what sometimes that young Tony needs needed, you know, that just to be heard and comforted and found, find a connection outside of a substance. Bravo, Tony, bravo. <laughs> oh, I think this is a great segue into the freedom that you found. And I think for our audience members who have not heard about you. And the six words that you mm. say set you free. Can you share those six words and, and what they mean to you? Because I think it has the potential to set us all free. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I mean, when I was, when I was studying of many years to become that psychotherapist I am today, you know, I, there was this lecture in, in, in class, you know, in, in a particular subject, and we were talking, it was very much about emotional intelligence, you know? So he's seen in me at the time, this is what he told me afterwards, you know? He's seen in me that a certain potential, but there was this thing that was hidden within me that needed to be got out, needed to be released. And he really seen that if I was to do what he thought he didn't want to tell me to do, just allow me to do, he thought I would be able to free. He says, there's going to be, he says, Tony, the six words that's going to change your life forever. I guess. Now you could imagine the student, not the psychotherapist. Yeah, because he didn't student. tell you what they are. No, the student in me was going, oh, staying in my head and trying to go to the theory books. Freud, help. I'll get the answer in Freud. I'll get the answer in, you know whoever, you know, Victor Franklin, whoever it would be, you know, where I was at the time, I just didn't get it. Like it just, I couldn't connect with it. I couldn't get them words, you know. And it was all about six. I was always thinking six words, you know, and I was going, I could never get it. And it was only in that period of time when I was kind of about to do the TED Talk that I began to realise that this is this is really big for me because... You know, I'm about to put myself on kind of stage here and, you know, that stuff that I always wanted to talk about, that them questions that I always want answered, I'm literally going to pour this out. And I never had spoke to my mum and dad even in that kind of, you know, that kind of detail as well. You know, and I never spoke to friends, family members, 
all that about what I what I what my life was like as I grew up. Like never spoke about it, you know. And uh, I was to realize that in the in that time of you know about to do the TED talk that this is it. This is it. This is what I'm going to do. You know, and, and I thought about it and I said, I often think about it because I get emotional about it now, you know. I feel emotional now, as I say, you know. And I, I said to myself, it's about where I am, who I am. It's them six words that I'm going to share my story and set myself free. And that was it. And it's sharing the story of your life and setting free. And it's just, it suddenly sent my world into a new world. It's it's become such a different world now. You know, because I, I, I really like to, I, every time I do this, I, every time I share my story, I, it impacts on someone. And if it's only one person, I've changed their world as well. So I always say to people, you know, it's it's sharing your story will set you free. And it set me free, you know, and uh, I was lucky to have a lot of therapy behind me at this stage now as well. You know, I, I done a lot of work on myself. Uh, I would do a lot of work on my adoption piece as well. And, you know, so uh, it was just, it's just set myself free. I really have. And uh, I truly believe that today. I really that that's, that's what's changed my world. Mm. Yeah, Tony, when when I heard you say that, it, it really is what I feel to be the path toward healing, that sharing your story in its full breadth, not held back, not polished, not edited, not peopling the real true story. And another thing that I really want to talk to you about as well that that pair nicely with this I was last night to go to sleep and all these invasive thoughts are pouring in and I'm just confessing here it's kind of like my adoptee brain is you know you're not you don't belong yada yada just this chatter 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 it is so brutal and you said that you actually have been trained in self-compassion so for those of us out there don't have a lot of that can you explain what it looks like and what can we do as human beings and adopted people to create that space? Because it seems to me that that is an important step toward healing too, is not just being for ourselves. Yeah. I mean, it, it, it's a big question, Heidi. It really is, you know, and uh, I was fortunate enough to actually study under uh, Kirsten Neef, who would be, I suppose she's like the, the creator of self-compassion and uh you know um we were to i was to you know be trained under her in the very early stage of, of what she's developed into such a global thing now which is global self-compassion in so many aspects she's focused on not just that general self-compassion it's self-compassion in the person in recovery self-compassion in the child and the teenager and she's changed the whole world with this this self-compassion you know and it's it's just about I suppose the way she sums it herself is sometimes you know she tells a story about being on a plane you know and realizing that in that moment when the stewards or the stewardesses are are, are doing their pre-flight routine and it talks about you know where the masks comes down and you must put your own mask on first. And like that, it's like that. Don't put it on anybody else first. It's all about yourself first. Care for yourself first. And in that place, that's not being selfish. That's being caring. And that's being compassionate to yourself to make sure that you can actually help someone else. And I suppose that's the way I always see self-compassion to be able to explain it in such a short space of time because there's so much to this self-compassion and I hope that explains it in a, in a way that mm. we have to care for ourselves first 
if we're going to care for others. And like that, you know, I suppose if I take myself into this, that piece around my addiction, you know, where I had total hatred for myself, you know, and it was learning that, you know, for me, the, the freedom in, in, in this is that to care for myself first, then that allows me to care for others. You know, so uh, that's how I learned to do it. And uh, that's what I tend to do now, that self-compassion piece. But it's just about touching the heart, feeling the heart, and it's okay. It's going to be okay. And in moments where we feel really, you know, anxious, fearful, as an adoptee, touch the heart. We're touching on that person, that young child that was born into this world, you know, and, and, and taken away. You know, we touch the heart. It's going to be okay. It's going to be okay. And it's a... Uh, that's the self-compassion piece, you know, to be told it's going to be okay. And, uh, you know, as an adoptee, we weren't told it's going to be okay. We were afraid to know it's going to be okay. And the self-compassion piece tells me, you know, Tony, it's going to be okay. It really is. And that's self-compassion. Because mm. I could never do that for myself. So... It's so hard. It's so hard, Tony. I was actually last night. It was pretty funny because I'm like, well, I just don't belong and it's because I'm worthless. And then I come in with my self-compassion and say, well, that's understandable that you feel that way because of what's happened to you. So I'm sure it looks like craziness from the outside, but maybe it's being able to reframe the dialogue that we have inside of our mind. And I'm sure that takes a whole lot of work. Clearly, I have a long way to go. <laughs> but thank you for sharing that. I think that'll be helpful for people. That they'll be able to connect with, with that. Hmm. So, Tony, if you can take us currently to, to where you are, because I believe that, that healing is a continuum and where are you at right now? And what do you do on those difficult days? Because certainly we all have them. Mm. Tell us like where you're at in your life and what you're excited about and what you're struggling with and what you're working on and just things like yeah. that. I mean, to start off, I mean, one of the things that, you know, still to this day for me is always a struggle is in relationship, you know, in, in relation to relationships with others, you know, and, it's a constant battle of feeling good in that place and in, in, in a space with someone else, you know, and, uh, and that is a, is a piece that, you know, I continue to work on as a struggle, an ongoing struggle, you know, and uh, I've never married Heidi. I've never, I've never married. And, but like that, I've been in some beautiful, beautiful relationships, but I guess in, in, in the journey since, you know, in recovery, the relationships are so much different. There's so much more pure and there's so much more uh, real. And, uh, but like that, you could say that I only started to grow up in recovery. So that 15-year-old kid mm. that, 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 that took up his first drink, he never really grew up. He was still that 15-year-old when he stopped drinking 20 years later, like, you know. He was that 15-year-old. So... I've had to grow up in, in recovery, you know, and so that's, that 15-year-old kid became, you know, that 35-year-old child type of thing, you know, and so it's been, it, that, that's a difficult one, you know, because of where I was then and where I am today, you know, it's, it's much different than, but I, I, I've been able to create great bonds with my parents, you know, that, that was completely lost in my addiction. I've developed a great relationship in with my mom and dad now, and I, I suppose and I my mother taught me how to love. My mother has taught me how to love, and I've only learned that in recovery, and uh, I'm blessed that I've learned how to love in a way that she, no matter what I've done, and I know I've done a lot of bad things on her. When I, when I got into recovery, she held nothing against me. She said, I'm proud. I love you. I said, jeez. Like, I would never have done that for anybody. I don't think so. 
because of what I would have put them through, you know. And but I learned to love her. I really do. And I learned to love um, how she does, how she shows it. Like I'm very fortunate. Uh, the last say eight nine years, I've been able to sit in a big stadium in in Dublin here, where our team have been on a rampage of winning. Uh, big competitions, all around competitions, you know, and it is on. It's on international. It's on international uh, TV now. But we, I've been able to sit with her in finals, you know, and because I've been lucky to be able to, you know, have a couple of seats, um, corporate seats there myself, and she sits beside me, and we've had joyous occasions. And I've got to know her. I've got to know her in that space. Mm-hmm. We've got to talk about adoption. We've got to talk about and share what it was like for her in that space when that knocked door came, in the space when she picked me up, you know, when when I, when she first picked me up. So it's been I've been blessed and I've learned that I could be vulnerable with my mother. I know I love her. And I know she loves me. And the same for my father. You know, the same thing with my father as well, the same thing. So, you know, that, that for me has been brilliant and it's a great connection to have, you know, and uh, so... Um, so I suppose they were the struggles, but that, that's a really positive thing that's come out of it, you know. And, uh, you know, now I, I work in a field. I feel privileged. I feel absolutely privileged to work in this field. I, I work in um, a private practice, which I work out of my home, which um, I, have work, I work in a, a clinic in the centre of Dublin, which I very much specialise in addiction. So people in recovery. And uh, inner city, which is, you know, depths of poverty, people who are underprivileged, uh, but very, very rewarding, Heidi, very rewarding. And I feel privileged to work there. I really do. I really, really do. And uh, I then also work in another clinic uh, where I would work with teenagers. So I'm seeing teenagers and uh, and that's that's such a privilege to do, you know, because... It's so rewarding, you know. And there was a lot of my life when rewarding for me was financial to get drink. Now, this particular reward is to see people, you know, just to see them coming back to you, to see the improvements, the progress in their lives, and, and just to see them grow, just to see them grow and to smile and to be happy and, uh, that's just a privilege to work in that field. It really is, you know. And uh, I'm very passionate about my work. I, I really am. I'm passionate about support. Um, I'm always trying to re-educate myself. I'm always trying to keep on top of what nuances are coming coming down the line. And you know, Ireland is a little bit behind where the US is in relation to mental health, psychotherapy, psychology. But we're forging ahead. We really are. We're making great headways there, you know. We wouldn't be anywhere around the same level in relation to adoption. I mean, you know, next month is a really big month in relation to adoption. Um, there, there's a lot about to be passed. It's gone through our government at the moment. And all adoptees will have access to their full birth certificate. So we'll have, we'll have for the first time in my life, I'll have, identification identification I'll be identified as being you know it's amazing a, yeah a birth mother I have a birth father I have a date of birth you know I have a location where I was born all them things that have been kept from us so mm. it's going to be good it's going to be great yeah it really is and the healing journey continues yeah, definitely. So a couple of things before we finish up, Tony, I know that if I'm accurate about your story, you have not been able to discover your biological mother yet. And so maybe that is in the future. So the reason I bring that up is just to acknowledge that that the struggle is very difficult with that, but also Mm. to acknowledge that you're functioning in a space where healing is continuing even though you don't have all of the parts and pieces. And so the journey continues. And I was really thinking about listening to all of these beautiful people telling their stories. 
I wonder how you feel about the word acceptance. Because I feel for me personally, my resistance and my anger and my victimhood about what has happened to me and what it has cost me. I feel like that deserves its space, Tony. Yeah. But it's also feels so heavy and so hurtful and so confining, almost like a straitjacket on my soul. Yeah. And, and I just wonder what you have to say about that, because one of the things I believe you said is no matter what you find, you'll, you're ready to accept it. Yeah. Can, can you speak to that? Because, man, we could be mad until the end of time over all of this. Yeah. Where, how does all that fit in? I mean, whew. yeah, I, I really hear you when you, you talk about the word acceptance and the, for me, there's, there's the bluntness of, you know, accept, acceptance, you know. Yeah. I feel this is too deep for me, you know, to just use that word acceptance. I think we need, what I tend to do to answer that question is that, you know, let's put this in perspective, you know, that, you know, we were taken away from our biological parent at the very first moment we entered this world the cruelest thing you could ever do, like, you know. And, and in a time, okay, in the 70s in Ireland, where we're talking about, you know, a country governed by the Catholic Church, the sympathy and empathy just wasn't there for people. We were told to just accept it and get on with it, you know. And that, for me, I'm, 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 just, I'm just bringing in that word you use around acceptance. I, I feel that it's too blunt it's too harsh. It brings up too much for me. And uh, it hurts. It still hurts. Mm. That's okay. So, mm. But I, I, I think uh, if, you, if you could imagine where Ireland was, I mean, unmarried mothers just were treated as second-class citizens. Their children were taken off them, you know, and, and not, nothing, was ever, nothing was ever put in place, counselling or anything, not even comforting it was just accepting and get on with it you know and uh, that for me is really hard so i'm being really empathetic and understanding to the Barrett mother's journey as well hearing this you know and i and i and i think as well that where where i am myself in in relation to that particular piece would be that i i've kind of come on this journey myself uh, which has had a lot of ups and downs and swings and roundabouts and you know I, I felt I was on this train all my life and there was times when I didn't know how to get it off it it was very fast and then it was very slow and I still couldn't get off it and I had this frustration in me you know and I, I realised that I used to put a destination on life I used to say there's an end goal in this and it was to you know to stop drinking to to, to become a person that I am today, to, to find my Barrett mother, to, it was always a destination. And I realized in what I said earlier on about that, sharing the story and setting myself free, that in actual fact, I maybe didn't need a destination. I maybe didn't, I, I put into perspective, like maybe I didn't need a destination. Maybe this is all part of what I'm meant to be, is just enjoy this journey and, yeah, it is a, it's a great journey now. Uh, it's a nice journey now, but I, I thought about it and it brings me back to the 15-year-old child. You know, that child that maybe found some solace in, in doing a jigsaw with a lot of different pieces in it and then sometimes found frustration in losing a piece or two of the jigsaw and not being able to complete it. But then I found that Tony was okay but actually, in actual fact, not having them pieces in my jigsaw. So the way I look at it now is that my life is maybe that jigsaw. And I'm okay not to have a couple of pieces in it at the moment. So that takes for me the bluntness of that word acceptance that I need to accept this jigsaw as it is. No, I mean, that's okay. So I, I think that... The jigsaw for me is the piece that, yeah, it's okay not to have them pieces in there at the moment. 
And who knows what's going to happen in life in, in the coming years for me, you know, and that's okay. It's okay. And I think what, what, what I know what happens to me when I use the word acceptance and the hurt and the anger is that I need to hold little Tony's hand. Little Tony is hurt. He's really hurt. But when I hold little Tony's hand, he's going to be okay. Because I have the answers now. I've been on the journey. So I have the answers for you, little Tony. So you're right, Tony. You don't need to accept that. And little Bert, when he was born, Tony, you don't need to accept the way it was born for you. But I'm here to look after you, and I will look after you. And that's what I do. Does that answer the question mm -hmm. for you? Oh my goodness. <laughs> that that was uh, everybody needs to push rewind on that. Don't, that was so good. I have never thought of it that way. Thank you. You just dismantled my way of thinking about acceptance because it almost feels disrespectful to what's happened. And I think it wraps up the self-compassion. Instead of having to force ourselves to accept something that's really unacceptable. And yes. having the self-compassion and saying it's okay, we can be a jigsaw puzzle without pieces and still carry on. Just That's beautifully right. said, Tony. As we end, is there anything else you would like to say to all the amazing people listening? Is there anything else on your heart that we didn't talk about during our interview that you would like to share? Well, well, it's been, a, again, it's, it's a privilege to share my story and I really appreciate you connected with me, Heidi, uh, and uh, let me do this. And, uh, you know, I hope at some stage, you know, that, that, you know, that people out there who haven't had the chance to share their stories, like, can reach out to people who will be able to, you know, allow them to share the story in a way that they'll be heard, they'll be listened to, and uh, they'll be comforted. And obviously, maybe allow that beginning of the healing or maybe to mm. progress that healing. And uh, yeah, so that's, that's, that's really what I hope people would get from my uh, share tonight, today. And uh, so hopefully that helps. Mm. Tony, this has been such a special time with you. Thank you. I've learned so much. And I just appreciate the gift of your energy. Um, you are a light in the darkness. Thank you so much. Thanks, Heidi. Take care.